0: As I mentioned earlier, we are in this series on the church, and pastor-teacher-designate Tim Sen and I are looking forward to continuing in this series, along with Pastor Todd Murray, who will be preaching on March 6th regarding the worship of the church, and so we're looking at good days, as we understand this that we are occupied with, that takes up our time, our efforts, our love, our commitment, the church. It's a simple title, really, but it has so many implications to it. You remember the first message that I gave last time I was in the pulpit, and that was really talking about how the local church began, but by widening it to how the church began. And then last Lord's Day, Pastor Tim talked about the only adequacy that we are to have in the church, and that is not in ourselves, but in God the Father himself. And for this morning, I want to talk about the identity of the church, the identity of the church. And I want us to ask ourselves this morning three particular questions regarding the identity of the church. The first is obviously very simple. What is the church? What is the church? The second is what are the metaphors for the church? What are the various metaphors that the New Testament teaches regarding what the church is And then thirdly and finally this morning, what is the goal, or the end, or the purpose, or the design of the church? So really, an easy, simple outline that will occupy us this morning regarding the church. The church, as Paul Hamline mentioned a moment ago, for which Christ died. Or maybe even more specifically, the church for whom Christ died. We want to talk about the church what is it what are the metaphors that describe it and then what is the end or the goal or the purpose or the design of it let's talk first of all about what is the church what is the church let me give you a definition I think this will be clear it'll be succinct which is a challenge for me of course always what is the church Here it is. The church is comprised of true, genuine believers in Jesus Christ and who are spiritually united to Him by grace through faith in His sacrificial death on the cross. Now, don't worry, I'll repeat it. What is the church? The church is comprised of true, genuine believers. In Jesus Christ, and who are spiritually united to Him by grace through faith in His sacrificial death on the cross. That's what make, makes up this term church. The term, by the way, church, is used in the New Testament both in a universal sense, that is, all believers, and also in a restricted or particular sense. That is, a group of believers that are gathered in one place. We, of course, call that the local church. And the local church, or local churches, comprise what we might call the militant church, the church that exists on earth. The universal church, of course, includes all of those that are comprised of the church, even those who have gone on to be with the Lord. They're still a part of the church. So we have the universal church, and we have in that restricted sense, the local church. And those are really, in one sense, the primary references in our Bibles regarding the church that give us the sense of the form and the shape of the church and the most dominant way that the New Testament uses to describe what the church is is to describe it as the body of Christ remember in my prayer earlier I said that when we talk about the body of Christ in this sense referring to the church we're not talking about the physical body of Christ that he had on this earth when he walked among us but the body in that spiritual sense, that that mystical sense, not mystical as we normally think of that term, but mystical in the sense that it's comprised of the hearts and lives, the souls, the thinking of all of those believers, especially those who congregate in one place that make up what we would say is a portion of the greater body, and that is you, our congregation. That's what we mean by the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, if you turn there, gives us a sense of this, this idea of the body, and we'll talk much more about the body using that metaphor as we go along. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 say this, And He, referring to Christ, put all things under His feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church. God the Father takes Christ, and because of His death and His burial and His resurrection, puts Christ as head over all things, notice what it says, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. There are some power-packed implications in several of those terms. God has put all things under His feet and gave Him, Christ, as head over all things to the church. Gave to the church, as it were, the gift of Christ setting Him as head over the church, which is His body, the church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That means He's everything. He's everything to the church. Everything that the church is or could be finds itself underneath its head The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He reigns at the right hand of the Father for the sake of the church. And in a reciprocal relationship to the church, we as His body have all for our life and nourishment, seeing it as flowing from Him. Everything we are. Everything we do. Everything we stand for. Everything we live for. Everything we receive, all our nourishment, all our care, all our directions, all our purpose, all of the ends for which we live and exist and do ministry, comes from Christ our head. We exist through Him and we live to Him because we are the fullness of Him who is our all in all. One writer said this, It is the work of the Holy Spirit... To join people of diverse racial and social backgrounds into one body, the body of Jesus Christ, which is His church. Now that's very briefly the identity of the church. And I suppose if we were to ask the question, what is the church, and I were to give you at least that brief definition, that very, very cursory delineation of the church, we also ought to answer the question, what is the church, by telling you in the negative form what it is not. What it is not. So I've just given you the positive in that sense of what it is, but I also must tell you what it is not. And so you and I can learn even by negative example, not just the positive, but by negative example or by its opposite, what the church is not. Now, of course, we could say that it is not many things, and I can't tell you all that the church is not. I remember at one point listening to John MacArthur, who talked about all of the characteristics that if you took a a cursory interview with people around the country and you asked them, well, uh, what would you describe uh, equals um, fellowship, or interaction, or being together, or sharing problems... And he went on to describe a few of those attributes. And he said, some persons, if you ask them that question, what am I describing? They might say, well, that sounds like a bar. Because all of those things happen in a bar. So we could say that the church is not many things. And it certainly isn't a bar. Even though, in our day and age, there are many people who are trying to establish churches in bars. There's even a website, Bar Church. Well, that's not what the church is in its essence, And certainly that's not where it should be by all of its gifts and abilities and diversities and ministries. It certainly could be one thing, and that is evangelistically reaching out to people who stay in bars a lot. But that's not the church. And the church isn't a lot of other things. But restricting ourselves to some of the common misconceptions about the church and what it is not, here are a few, maybe just three, all right? The church is not simply new and improved Judaism. The church is not simply some kind of new and improved Judaism. Okay? The church, and this is what this church teaches, and this is what I believe, the church is not the new Israel. It's not the new Israel. It's not as though Israel, the Israel of old, was eclipsed, replaced sometimes called supersessionism, by the church. Now, many good and solid and evangelical believers do truly teach that. But that's not the teaching of this church, and that's not my belief. The church is not new and improved Judaism. It's not something that was thrown out with the old and began with the new. It is true, of course, that there are similarities between the people of God of all ages. In fact, even in our New Testaments, in 1 Peter chapter 2, as some would teach, that when you see the church being described as this temple, uh, as this holy nation, uh, a people for God's own possession, which are clearly verses that have been taken from the Old Testament, now referring obviously to the church, well then there you have it, they say. That means then that the church has replaced Israel. I don't think so. I think you can have both continuity and discontinuity, that is, similarities and dissimilarities between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, and you don't have to see them as once and forever synonymous. The church is not some kind of new and improved Judaism. There is, by most assuredly, the sense that there are many similarities and that the people of God will one day worship God in such a way that I trust all of those those dissimilarities, those discontinuities will utterly disappear. But not until then. The church is distinct from Israel. And the church is not some kind of newly formed Israel. In fact, look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. This isn't a direct hit on this subject, and this subject could occupy hours and hours, and books and books, and certainly have. And I will be raising many, many email questions that will pop into my inbox instantly on Sunday afternoon. But this is not, of course, what we're going to do for all of this hour. But at least we need to say, this church, and I believe that we are teaching something that is the church that is distinct from, from Israel, at least in some sense. And in Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth, Jesus says, on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now, there's a context here. And in addition to the point of that context in this passage... I believe Jesus could very well be pointing to some important differences between Old Covenant Judaism and the church of the New Covenant. What do I mean? Well, you could say it like this. The church could be represented here by the patch of unshrunk cloth, or, as it's referred to, new wine, which could not properly exist, Jesus says, in the context or in the format or in the program of the old garment, or the old wineskins, I think, referring, of course, to the old wineskins of Judaism. In other words, Jesus is coming onto the scene, and He's producing a new thing. And in fact, that new thing, according to Ephesians 2.15, is called the new man. And someone says, ah, but there you go. The, The new man is comprised, of course, of Jews and pagans, or Greeks, or Gentiles. And so, therefore, it's one new man. There is where your discontinuity falls apart. Well, not necessarily so if you look at the whole thing. If you look at the big picture, too many passages that seem not to fit if you think that the church has replaced Israel. In fact, I believe that the new is so new that even our meeting time has changed from Judaism of the past. We have gone now from what we say is the Sabbath for the Jews to what? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. That's what the first Christians did. That's just one example of what I'm referring to. In other words, the bottom line is this. The church is not Israel. The church, of course, is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, but it isn't the new Israel. So the church is not that, as some may assume. Secondly, the church is not the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God. It is certainly a subject or a part of the larger entity called the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is wider than the church. The church is a part of God's kingdom, but it is not the totality of the kingdom. It does not completely represent the kingdom of God in that sense that the kingdom of God is His eternal, sovereign rulership over all time. The church is not the kingdom of God. It certainly is part and parcel of that kingdom, Christ's kingdom, to be sure. But it isn't the totality of it. And we have to be careful that we're very clear on our terms. Thirdly, the church is not any one institution or denomination. The church is not any one institution or denomination. First Corinthians 12:13. we read it this morning would at least come close to telling us that. In fact, I believe it's wrong, misguided, even sinful, for any one denomination, one group, one sect, any religious organization to claim that they are the one true church. Right? God has His people everywhere. And He doesn't have all of His people in totality in one group, other than the body of Christ, of course. But the body of Christ, in its various names, have many forms, right? Many shapes, many ideas. We don't all agree on everything. Oh, you might wish we would, but the diversity of it actually, I think, proves the wonder of it. That if we all affirm the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if we all, given that definition of the church before, the church is made up of those true and genuine believers, remember? who believe Jesus Christ is Lord, who believe in His death and His burial and His resurrection from the dead, who believe in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross for sinners who forsake their sins. They repent. They place their confidence alone in Christ. That makes up the body of Christ. But the body of Christ, the church, is made up of many, many labels. I may not like all of them. I may not agree with all of the tenets of all of them. But no one church... No one group, no one institution, no one religious organization can claim that it's the one true church. It's the only thing that's valid. My mother, as you know, was raised in so many ways from her early 20s until her 40s to be a Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witness would claim they're the one true church. They are Jehovah's Witnesses on the earth. That's not true. That's a lie. That's not biblical. That's not what God prescribes. Because if it were, then all of us would be cast out because we're not a part of that group. Be careful. Watch out for anybody who says, we and we alone have the truth. And most of the time, you can tell right away, That a group claiming to be the one true church will normally give the opposite characteristics of what the Bible describes as the Christ-exalting characteristics of the church, the body of Christ. No, the church is not new and improved Judaism. It is not the kingdom of God. It's not any one denomination or organization. It is the living, spiritual mystical, magnificent body of Jesus Christ. It is an organism made up of those who love and devote themselves to Jesus Christ. No one individual is the church, but individuals make up the church. Even the word church sometimes has to be so clearly defined, because even today we have quote-unquote, para-church organizations. And sometimes they lapse into language that should be used only by the organism we know as the local church. So we have to be very, very careful. The word church itself, you ready for this, means simply this. Assembly. Assembly. Gathering. Congregation. That's all it means. In fact, when Jesus used it in Matthew 16, when He said, I will build My church... Very generic use of that term. First by Jesus, first in the Gospels. It would later take on very precise meaning, very clear meaning. And once the New Testament epistles, which are the owner's manual of the church about how to operate itself, it it becomes precise. It becomes clear. It becomes very, very clear and precise as to its leadership and its ministries and its functions and its order. But really, when you break it down to its original usages, the church just simply meant a gathering, those called to gather. The Greek word, ekklesia, or if you want to anglicize it as some do today, ecclesia. The ecclesia of the church is the Christian people of God called to worship the Godhead. And so, ekklesia is really. In its initial usages, really a general, non-technical term, simply meaning assembly. I'll show it to you. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Acts 7:38. Here's a, an interesting use of this particular term In Acts 7:38. If you back up to verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation, the assembly in the wilderness. Now you see it's using the word congregation or assembly. Now some would say, oh, you see there's the church being referred to in the Old Testament. Don't, don't confuse the idea that the church is simply a word that describes an assembly. Okay? It could be translated assembly. It's translated here in the ESV as congregation. So be careful. In fact, look at Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19... Verse 32, Now, some cried out one thing. This is that riot at Ephesus. Now, some cried out one thing, some another. Sort of reminds me of what we saw in a square in Egypt over the last several days. Somebody crying one thing, somebody crying another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 39, Verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. There's our word. Verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay? All of those, very generic. You could even say crowd. Might we say mob? They were in confusion. So, very generic term. Hebrews 2.12. Very similar. Even the Hebrew word kahal. Is frequently used of the assembly of the Jewish people of the Old Testament and is even translated congregation. Okay? So we're talking about a very general, a very generic word. But, as we move on into the New Testament... And as we specifically hear from the apostles regarding the church and as God, through divine revelation, gives them that form and that shape and that idea of this distinct group, that word becomes much more precise, much more clear, much more technical. It it, it came to add more technicality to it as it becomes increasingly used in the New Testament, I told you Jesus used it very generically in Matthew 16. And because of what we know the church became, we can then backload into Jesus' use of it. Ah, oh, this is what he was referring to. You see, but the church begins to take on some speciality in its development and in its shape. And remember our definition now that the church is made up both of the universal church and the local church you say well is that really fair can we really prove that in our bibles yes look at some references to the to the universal church one of those was that Ephesians 1 passage look at Ephesians chapter 3 these are clearly references to the universal body of Christ they can't be referring in that sense To the local expression, unless we of course say that we realize that this universal expression has its applicability in the local expression. But in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, So that through the church, that's universal, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Look at verse 21 of Ephesians 3. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You see, there's a transcendence there. The church is being referred to there in a universal sense. Look at chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body and is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church, universal body of Christ, submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's, that's got to be a reference to the universality of the church. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Verse 32, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All of those. You see the universality being referred to there. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 18. These are what we might call the the macro verses on the church, or the mega verses on the church. Colossians 1, 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might have preeminence. This is the church. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church. That can have no other reference, at least in terms of its context and its implications, than to the universal church. Those are just a few passages. But now, look at local church references. Look back at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. You want to know the identity of the church? Here's here's one of the identifying marks that the universal body finds its expression in the local body. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch. You see, it's descriptive of a particular church. Prophets and teachers, etc., etc. Look at chapter 14, verse 23. And this is very interesting, because now we're seeing this New Testament come into its form and shape, especially as to its leadership. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now see, if you're not careful, somebody could be confused, because you could say, wait a minute, I thought the body of Christ was the church, singular. Yes, it is. But why then in verse 23 does it say that they appointed elders for them in every church? Are there Plural, universal bodies? Of course not. There's one universal body, singular in its concept, but it has local expressions in the plural, and those are what we refer to as local churches in the plural. Okay? And there's one of them. Appointed elders for them in every church. Referring to several. Romans 16.5. It's a very, very... Good reference in Romans sixteen five. Greet also the church in their house. The church of Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. Greet the church in their house. That was a particular church. And it may have even been and in those first days, because they didn't have buildings like you and I do, that we were talking about house churches even in one area or region or city. In fact, even we refer to do New Testament scholars and teachers and pastors, the churches in the region of Galatia, right? Probably not just one Galatian church, but a region that was made up of several local churches. We understand that. That's not hard for us to grasp. Which means then that the universal church, the body of Christ, has its expressions plural in churches. That's not hard to figure out. 1 Corinthians 1-2, it talks about the church at Corinth. You remember the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches? All of those, historically speaking, were churches in Asia Minor. There were seven of those there, maybe more, but those are the seven that Jesus was referring to. That's the church. And by the way, the church is not a building Right? I mean, we have a sign out that says the Bible Church of Little Rock. That's not the church, right? We understand that? That's the building in which the church comes to worship. Sometimes we even get confused there, right? Because we'll say to ourselves, well, nobody's at the church. Well, we know what we're saying by that. I mean, everybody's at the church. Because everybody's a part of the church. But no one's at the building where the church does its corporate worship. So... What is the church? It's made up of this, this grand group of people living and breathing here and now, this militant church, this church that's on the earth right now, and we are committed and united to one another in the body of Christ with its local expression at the Bible Church of Little Rock, and we confess that we are part of a greater union of churches that all confess Jesus as Lord with a kind of doctrinal specificity that means that there are some who might profess that they know Christ, but they're not in Christ, and there are those who are in Christ and we recognize those other churches, and there are elders that are appointed for those churches, and they have their local expression and they have their autonomy and they they have their life and they have their ministries and we recognize them even if they don't have the same label as we do, even if they have a different name than we do, but we recognize the universal call of the gospel in local churches in which Christ dwells. And we rejoice in that. That's the church. That's that's the identity of the church. Secondly, I said three questions. Here's the second one. What does the New Testament teach regarding the church? You say... In seven minutes? No, I can't do it in seven minutes. But well, we can do a real fast jet tour, and we can at least describe a few of them. Okay? A few of those teachings. And we can do so in the form of these metaphors, right? Here they are. The, the, the church is seen as a metaphor of the shepherd and his sheep. Right? Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 10. This is the metaphor of the church. One of those that is very, very precious to us as believers. Because the shepherd, of course, is our Lord Jesus. And the sheep are ourselves. Truly, truly, John 10.1, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And if you look at verse 9, Jesus explicitly says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. He who is a hired hand, verse 12, and not a shepherd, a hireling who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. But he says, That's not me. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And to what extent does the shepherd know his sheep? To what extent is he committed to the sheep? He says at the latter part of verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 17, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, verse 18, but I lay it down of my own accord. Would you like to have a shepherd like that? You do. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm an under-shepherd. All leaders are under-shepherds. But we report as well to the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. It's a beautiful metaphor. I wish we had time to do a whole series on all of the various metaphors of the New Testament that, that give us this rich content and background to who we are in the body of Christ and to whom we see as our head the shepherd and the sheep. here 's another one, the vine and the branches. Look at John 15. the vine and the branches that 's another beautiful metaphor. The vine, of course, is Christ himself, which means that he 's the only source of spiritual nurture for the branches. And we are those branches. We abide in Christ. And we have responsibility to be spiritually fruitful, according to John 15.5. And we have the responsibility to be confident in prayer, according to John 15.7. And to be joyful, John 15.11. He says, I am the true vine, John 15.1, and my Father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. I am the vine, verse 5. You are the branches. And there's this tremendous imagery that comes to us. Now, it may not always come to us so clearly, but if you were in that sort of, uh, how would we say now, Middle Eastern agrarian society, you would, you would know this so very well because you'd see these vineyards all over the place. You'd see these grapes growing, and you'd see this, and that picture would conjure up in your mind the beautiful imagery of the vine dresser, and the vine, and the branches, and it would come alive to you. I've taken two trips to Israel, and every time I go to that holy place, so many of these metaphors just come alive. You see them, and... And your mind with what you're visualizing and what, with what you know from the Word sort of comes together. And you see these metaphors and you rejoice in them. Here's another one. The head and the members of His body. Now, we talked about that. We don't have to talk about that a great deal. But Ephesians 1 talks about that. Ephesians 4 talks about that. Colossians 1.18, I read that to you. 1 Corinthians 12, we read it in our Scripture reading. Christ is the head of the body. He directs the body to its dynamic and its vital force for the control and the function of the body. He indwells the church. The church is subjected to Him, just like our body is subjected to the head. Whatever the head thinks, whatever the head purposes to do, then the body follows after. Now, of course, all those metaphors will eventually break down because we... Some of us who might experience in later life dementia or Alzheimer's, maybe the body doesn't always do something that the head is thinking because the head is diseased. But if you put that aside and you just talk about the head, then it's very, very clear. And when Paul talked in 1 Corinthians 12 about the eye and the hand, and he was making that metaphor speak to us about the need for the mutuality And the universality of the body itself and yes there's diversity and yes there's multiplicity of actions to be sure but there is unity there's there's not uniformity but there's unity the the eye can't say to the hand I don't need you the hand can't say to the eye I don't need you the lesser parts the the more private parts they can't say there's no no need uh, for me in the body because I'm being covered up every part is vital Everyone is crucial. And yet Christ is the head. He's the functional director of the body. Here's another one. The cornerstone and the stones of the building. That's another rich metaphor. 1 Peter 2, I referenced that earlier in the message. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul talks about he being a a builder and that there's a wise master builder. 1 Corinthians 3. Using that imagery of, of a building. Even we ourselves are cognizant of this because when it talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, what do we do to remind ourselves of that in a visual, physical, literal sense? Not of Christ Himself, but of the truth behind what Christ says? We, if you look right at here in our patio area outside, you'll see that we placed in this building what we call the cornerstone, and we put that Ephesians verse there. He's the chief Cornerstone, right? It's it's a visual reminder. I walk by that and I think of that metaphor, and it's glorious. He's the cornerstone. Well, we don't have him as the cornerstone, the building what? Crumbles. It crumbles. Here's another one: the high priest and the kingdom of priests, or the priesthood of believers. First Peter two, Revelation one. It's just great. It's grand. It's glorious. He's our high priest. And we can go to Him, and He's sympathetic to us, the book of Hebrews says. What a beautiful metaphor. Borrowed from the Old Testament, but new and distinct, because it's referring to the body of Christ. Here's another one. The last Adam and the new creation. The last Adam and the new creation. Romans 5. 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 2.15, all talking about this concept of the last Adam, referring to Christ, and referring to us as His new creation. Galatians 6 talks about that. Circumcision isn't anything, Paul says, but we as a new creation. Here's another one. The bridegroom and the bride. You say, you're going too fast. Well, at least just write them down, right? And then look up these passages, take your own concordance and look up these metaphors and begin to meditate on them. The bridegroom and the bride. Is there there not anything more wonderful in our culture than seeing a beautiful bride walk down the aisle and be united to the bridegroom and have the dad and the mom give her away to him? I mean, it's beautiful. We love it. All the girls are crying. They're weeping. This is so beautiful. We see the little kids walking down, and then they sometimes don't ever get down there because they're throwing flowers, and then they go back to pick up the flowers when they're not supposed to go pick up the flowers, when they're really supposed to just come down and be sweet and silent and behave, and that doesn't always work out. And we think, oh, isn't that so wonderful? Isn't that so grand? Think about this. The bride and the bridegroom. We are the bride, and our bridegroom is the Lord Jesus. It's far more glorious than any human idea. Here's another one. The heir and the joint heirs. The heir and the joint heirs. Christ is the heir of God. He provided the inheritance. In fact, He is the inheritance. And we are joined to Christ. Therefore, we're joint heirs with Him, the Bible says. It's tremendous. Romans 8 teaches that. Hebrews 1, 2. Here's another one. The first fruits and the fruits that will follow. Christ is the first fruits. We are the fruits that will follow. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's another one. The master and the servants. He's the master of the house. We're his servants. Colossians 3. 1 Corinthians 7. And oh, if we had more time. We could even see the church in various figures of speech, like the church as God's field, 1 Corinthians 3, which emphasizes our fruit bearing, right? Using that agrarian type of idea. The church as the new man, I've mentioned that, Ephesians 2.15, which emphasizes our solidarity, our unity. Or how about the church as a holy temple in the Lord? You see, which is one of the reasons why I believe, of course, that we are the new of the new covenant made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the temple, and we're not looking for a third temple to be built. You see, it's not improved Judaism. They're looking for a temple. They're looking for a building. They're looking for a structure. We're looking to Christ. How about the church as the temple of the living God? We are the temple of God. We comprise this temple, which is the Holy Spirit's temple. Or how about this one? The church is the house of God that's so readily available to us in our minds to conceive and to have impact by because that speaks of order and discipline administration how about the church as the pillar and support of the truth that's what it says in 1 Timothy 3:15 that emphasizes our responsibility to guard the truth protect the truth which really brings us to the third and final question and i know you didn't think i would get there but here we are what's the goal what's the purpose what's the end what's the design of the church what is it? Here it is. Here's the immediate purpose. Here's the immediate purpose to foster spiritual growth. That's it. That's the equipping of the church. We'll find out more in this series about that, but turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and you can read it in one passage one clear passage. They're all clear, but this is so succinct, so good, so readily understood. He gave the apostles, the prophets, Ephesians 4.11, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's that word equip. And here's what the immediate purpose, the immediate result of that purpose does for building up the body of Christ. That's what the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry does. It builds up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, which each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's that's the immediate purpose for the growth of the church, the building up of the church, the equipping of the church so that it might be built up, so that it might not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Here's another, the immediate responsibility. And we'll talk about this also later on. To equip the saints, that's the immediate purpose and the immediate responsibility to evangelize the lost. Matthew 28 16 to 20. There's our commission. The mission of the church is its commission. Colossians 4, Paul says in verses 5 and 6, Hey, I want you to pray for me so that I would be ready to evangelize others at the appropriate door that I'm supposed to go through, and that, that I'm going to do it with, with reverence, seasoned with salt, with gentleness. He's, he's evangelistically minded. He went out as, as an exemplar in many ways for us, so that we could see this, this New Testament preacher, this New Testament apostle, saying through his life and his witness, and the manifestation of the Spirit and his power through Paul, that we are to take His example. We're to evangelize. We're to take all of those doors of opportunity and blow them open for Christ and see what results. That's the immediate responsibility. The purpose of the church, equip each other so that we can be more effective outgoers. Right? We come here for equipping and we go out there for the result of the equipping. And in so many churches today, it's the reverse of that model. So many churches today built their whole philosophy around gathering unbelievers into this room. We rejoice when unbelievers come in here. But that's not who I'm talking to primarily. I'm talking to believers so that you might be equipped to understand what is the church, what is it not, how does the church function, what do we do, so that we can be equipped as the body so that we might equip ourselves for the purpose of evangelizing those who desperately need the gospel. You could say it succinctly like this. We gather for edification and we scatter for evangelization. See, we don't gather here for evangelization and then somehow scatter for equipping, for edification. How's that going to happen? If you're out there on your own in the war zone, right, in the marketplace, in the school, in the home, how are you going to be equipped? You need preaching. You need... Spiritual gifts, you need our help, you need the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. You can't do that on your own out there in some self-styled way. You need us to equip you, you need to equip us so that together we are built up as a body so that that body can be a major force as we move out into that lost and dying world. That's, that's the immediate responsibility. The purpose, build each other up. The responsibility, To tell others how we've been built up. And here's maybe the final one. The final one. With regard to this idea of what our purpose, our end, our design is. The ultimate purpose. Here it is. To glorify God. To glorify God in all that we do. And that's why I think probably 1 Peter chapter 4 sums it up for us so well, even in a context of talking about our gifts. As each one has received a gift, First Peter 4.10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And here is that ultimate goal now, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's a good place to say amen. Let's bow together. Father, we do say amen. And we do say, I want to be a part of the church. The body of Christ. Maybe there are some of you here and I described you to a T a moment ago. You are unbelieving. And I've talked about not only the church and its identity but being a part of it and what we do within it. And maybe your heart is stirring within you because you now realize I'm not a part of that I want to be a part of that I want to be a part of a living breathing organism that seeks to build and bless that seeks to fortify me against wrong teaching against the wiles of the devil so that I'm no longer tossed to and fro well if that's the case with you I pray That you would respond to this message. And that you would say, "I I want to be a part of the church. And here's how you're a part. You confess that you're not a part. Confess that you don't know Christ, but that you want to know Him. And this Christ of whom we speak is the Lord of this church. And He demands obedience and reconciliation salvation, redemption. You say, well, how do I achieve such a thing? Well, the very stirring in your heart might very well mean that the Lord has opened your heart, like Lydia in the book of Acts, to receive the things that have been spoken about this morning. And I pray that you would, as that heart is being opened by the Lord, that you would confess, I'm a sinner. And I need this Lord Jesus as my Savior. And I ask the Lord Jesus to save me, to rescue me, to deliver me from my sinful life. And to join me with this group of people that I find around me even this day. I don't want to just play church. I don't want to just date the church. I want to be truly a part of the church. I want to be inextricably linked with the church. And as Paul said in Ephesians, to be in Christ, into Christ. Oh Father, I pray, if that's the case with anybody here, an unbeliever who's come into our midst, that You would save them even now. And that they would confess that Jesus is Lord by Your Spirit. And Lord, I pray for those who are in our midst, whether they're members of our church or not, that You would challenge them to become more involved, more committed, more service-oriented, more intricately linked to the church. Because if they're a part of the body, why wouldn't they want to minister in that body and minister in a myriad of ways with the proper Priorities and the right balance, but to excel still more. Lord, we thank You that in, the, in just this brief one sermon, we're able to at least grab a hold of some of the concepts about the church and its identity. May it grow in our minds. May we fall in and greater, greater passion for this, Your church, for whom Christ You died the ultimate expression of Your love and commitment. May we return that love and commitment with our own. May we identify so with the church that through persecution or hardship, through downfall or whatever it may be that causes me to shy away from involvement and alignment with the church, may I, Father, put away those things. May may I eschew those things which have kept me from being passionately committed to this, your church. And in this local expression, may we see a a cadre, an army, a band of brothers and sisters who will see and believe that the local church, this church, can love and pursue and maintain and grow and form and shape itself into a glorious body. attracts itself to those who say I want what you have father we pray that we would through the immediate purpose of equipping and the immediate responsibility of evangelizing with the immediate goal and design and end that you be glorified in all things would be through Christ our head and for the joy of this your body and for the end that we would one day sing in the hallelujah chorus of heaven that Jesus Christ is our all in all. For His sake we pray. Amen.